This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production, now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to the MIP. Yeah! <laughs> the Michael Podcast. You knew this was coming. Guess who? Oh. Let me start this thing off. Join me every week for the Michael Irvin Podcast. We'll give you the full MIP experience. I'm talking everything from football to fashion. I will be chopping it up with playmakers, headline makers, and I am throwing haymakers. I'm the MVP of the MIP. Don't miss it. Download new episodes of the MIP, the Michael Irvin Podcast, every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Wu, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dupin, freelance writer, has some great work at 538 and everywhere else. And have a really fun, wide-ranging conversation talking about our takeaways from the just-concluded season, including, you know, like how teams build to face off against champions, and also what we're looking forward to in the offseason and some of the kind of big-picture concepts that he and I are both talking about. And then we get into some specifics in terms of the Pacers and the Pelicans and a few other teams really enjoyed the conversation runs about an hour and i hope you'll enjoy it too thank you so much for coming on thanks for having me man appreciate it this is an interesting time i mean it's it's a longer gap than we usually have between the end of the nba finals and the start of the offseason i guess usually the draft is kind of the the part like the the kind of the inflection point there but then there might be a longer gap between the draft and the season and the offseason we'll see that that seems like it's changing by the minute a little bit right now so i i want to start with kind of recapping the bubble in the season that was i've found that it's a hard a hard year to kind of make these big pronouncements especially with the idea of like you know like you think about what team building takes away from the champions and it's like well you have two top 10 top five players you're going to be good we already kind of knew that uh what are your kind of takeaways whether it's from the lakers winning or other or other parts of this overall process i think my big takeaway is that it's hard to know what to take away just like you said um a lot of what happened in the bubble is obviously not repeatable. I think one thing to take away is that less travel and um, I guess a more enclosed environment will probably lead to better play or at least better offense. Like I think it's pretty clear that the the lack of travel um, helped guys. Um, so that's one thing I think I would take away. I don't know how the league can really do that. Maybe they do more things like, you know, if you're going to play road games against the Clippers and Lakers, like just do them in a row. If you're going to play road games against the Knicks and Nets, do them in a row. Like try to group together these road games against teams that are located close to each other as much as possible in order to minimize travel and maybe have longer homestands for teams too. 
Like, I don't know how that works with arena availability, but it's something that I think they should at least try to do. You know, another thing is that, you know, you always see, I think, the year after whoever wins the finals, you see teams the next year try to not necessarily emulate them, but construct teams to beat them. And I think that that's almost always not necessarily a mistake, but it's sort of veering too far in one direction. Like the thing that I always think about is in uh, in 2009 when uh, the the Celtics and Cavs built teams to beat each other and then they bought, both lost to the Magic because they just didn't wind up playing each other, you know? Um, and I think that if, if teams build their roster next year specifically to combat the Lakers, there's going to wind up being some other team that comes in and, and is just a different team and you lose for a different reason because you didn't think about that because you were thinking about beating the Lakers instead. That's a great point, especially because while there are some commonalities between the teams that we could pencil in right now as being championship contenders for the 2020-21 season, there are there are also some significant differences, and I mean, defending LeBron James and Anthony Davis on the same team is different than Giannis, is different than Kawhi and Paul George, and there will inevitably be other teams that kind of work their way into that mix. And so I, I think that is a very well-taken point, and also remember that the decisions a team makes are very rarely like kind of a one-shot, you know, like a one-year commitment. Usually you're, you know, if you're signing a free agent, it's multiple seasons. It's, mm-hmm. you know, if you're drafting a player, it can be even longer than that. And so thinking too immediate about who is right in front of you, especially for younger teams that have kind of longer windows, can be mm-hmm. even more challenging. And that's part of why I, I push so heavily for teams to take the best prospect available for example in the draft is because you don't know where things are going to go so you take the best player and that that is not necessarily even rigidly who the best teams are but also who is going to be on your team and how those players are going to be in terms of health in terms of quality and everything else yeah i mean i always advocate for taking the best player too um and not just because like of the reasons you mentioned but also like your needs are not static. So like maybe you need a point guard now, but you might not in two years, you know, like, or not necessarily you might not need a point guard, but maybe you think your biggest need is point guard. But over the next couple of years, uh, one of your wings is going to get hurt. One of them is going to decline due to age. And one of them is going to leave in free agency. And all of a sudden you need a wing, but you didn't draft a wing two years ago because you thought you didn't need one because you had these three guys. But now none of them are part of are like capable of being part of, you know, a playoff contender or a championship contender. That's why, like thinking about what you need right now is never going to lead to the best long term decision making. I think I just read a a piece the other day. Um, it wasn't about basketball. It was just about the process of decision making and what kind of decisions you should make and what kind of um, thought processes should go into the decisions that you make. I can't remember the website, but it's written by a guy named, I think, Jonathan Bales is, I think, his name. And it was basically about how a lot of decisions, for the most part, are not that important and therefore should be made quickly and with the longest term view in mind so that you can make the decision and then adjust and then make another decision and then adjust and make another decision and then adjust. And it was basically, you know, does 
does the is there a decision that you can make that has the best long term view in mind? If yes, make it. If no, is there a decision that has the best short term view in mind? If yes, make it. If no, then like go to another question. And it was just sort of laid out the decision tree. I thought it was really interesting. And the the thing that came first is like, is there a decision that will make that you can make that will help you best in the long term? And that was the first decision point that you come to. And I think that teams don't often think that way they much more often think about the short term because they want the immediate gratification and the immediate results when that's not necessarily like especially in the draft i think you're going to be wrong about the short-term results more often than not so you might as well think about the longer term and and react and make your decisions that way there very well could be other reasons for it, but I think the kind of the the example that I like to use for this from a basketball context is Phoenix at four in the 2017 draft taking Josh Jackson over De'Aaron Fox, mm-hmm. and they had Eric Bledsoe at the time. They had you know they thought they thought they had the point guard situation figured out. They had recently drafted Devin Booker, and they didn't really know what Booker was going to come. We didn't know that for years later in terms of hit the role that and he still could change and improve and everything like that. And maybe they, maybe the Suns, McDonough thought that Josh Jackson was a better player. Entirely possible. It mm-hmm. seems to me that Fox being a point guard and kind of conflicting in some ways with their with their holdover talent was was a factor in that decision. I also thought Josh Jackson wasn't good. So like that that is it's kind of for me it's like it's an easier explanation than. The, like the the point guard thing is an easier explanation than they saw the draft completely differently than I did in certain certain respects, and then Eric Bledsoe, you know, tweets I don't want to be here, ends up on the Milwaukee Bucks, and they end up paying Ricky Rubio, which is not the worst thing in the world. It helped them a lot in the nineteen twenty season. But if they theoretically had somebody who was cost controlled or just somebody in any position who was better than Josh Jackson, that would make a huge difference. And the Suns are on a much better track now, but. Those sorts of decisions, it's kind of exactly what you were talking about before of drafting, thinking about what we have now versus where things could go moving forward, whereas sometimes you draft duplication, and this is something I've actually praised the Cleveland Cavaliers for, is you don't know who's going to work out, so you might as well, especially if it's an important position or role, you might as well take multiple swings because odds are they're not all going to work. Yeah, so I've got a few different things that I want to touch on from what you said. First, I think you can go back even further in the Suns' decision tree to not thinking necessarily about the long term over the short term when they were playing two point guard lineups and they decided that they needed three point guards in order to do that so they could have two point guards on the floor at all times. And I think that was actually a good idea. They just didn't necessarily think that the three point guards themselves would bristle at that, and they did. So they decided we're only going to have one, and they traded two of them. (laughs) They traded Dragic, and they traded Isaiah Thomas instead of just trading one. Um, well, and, so that and was, it's also notable because they they got a lot for Dragic, you know, like those those picks from Miami. Those oh, are yeah. valuable. Though things have worked out, you know, let's say for the Miami Heat overall for most for for a fair portion of that time. But they they basically dumped Isaiah Thomas. And again, that yeah. could be a talent evaluation, just like, hey, Danny, Danny Ainge saw something that the Suns front office did not. But it also could have been, we need to, like, we need to get him out to solve this. And then, oh, crap, now we're in a, an even more stark situation. Yeah. And I think, you know, they also traded a bunch of the, like, I think they traded one of the pieces from that haul to get Brandon Knight, which didn't work out well either. So that was, you know, another kind of bad decision. Second of all, um, I actually was one of the people that was high on Josh Jackson, but De'Aaron Fox was actually my favorite player in that draft. Not not that I thought he was going to be the best player. He was just my favorite to watch. Like I just love 
point guards like him who just relentlessly push the pace down people's throats all game. So I was kind of conflicted in terms of what they should do at the time because I did think Jackson was going to be good. Um, But if they had not taken Jackson, they wouldn't have needed to dump Jackson's contract when they thought he was bad and they wouldn't have needed to use DeAnthony Melton to do that. So, you know, they they could have had DeAnthony Melton in addition to whoever they drafted over Jackson. I think DeAnthony Melton looks like a pretty good player. I think he's a restricted free agent this offseason, maybe. He is. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Melton, Melton I, only had a he only had a two year contract. And so I, that might have been I'm not sure if that was because of the you can only you can only sign players to two years using the minimum exception or if that was for another reason. But right. well, the Rockets signed him and then traded him to the Suns to dump the yes. Ryan Anderson contract. Like, oh, so that makes sense because of- they might not have had they might not have wanted to use the MLE so that that actually could be an explanation for what happened yeah um and then so one thing that the the Jackson Fox uh thing got me thinking about is I've been having a conversation with one of my friends recently he's a a, a Nick fan just like I am and he's very much in the and he's he's a really big basketball fan and he watches a lot more of the draft eligible players during the year than I do. And he's become very focused on the Knicks getting a point guard because, you know, they haven't had a good point guard since I was like 13 years old. And that guy was Charlie Ward, who wasn't even all that good. Um, so one of the things that I've thought about with the draft is that it might just be a better idea to just draft wings and then you can sign centers at the minimum and then try to trade for or sign point guards that you already know are good. Um, basically look like what the Celtics have done, where they have just drafted a bunch of wings and they cycled through Isaiah Thomas and then Kyrie Irving and now Kemba Walker. Um because if your point guard is not good, your team's not going to be good. It's just like almost definite. If you don't have a point guard, your team's just not going to be good. You just need – that position is way too important to running efficient offense. And if you don't have an efficient offense, it's almost definite that your team isn't going to be good. I mean you can get away with it if you have a LeBron or if you have a James Harden or you know if you have Giannis or something like that. But most teams don't have those kind of players. And unless there's a guy on the board like a John Morant or even like a Trey Young or Luka Doncic who are going to be transformational offensive players – I think it might be just more beneficial to just draft wings over and over again and sign centers at low money and try to go get point guards that you already know are good. Um, I'm curious what you think of that philosophy. There's definitely some merit to it. It goes back to an idea that I've talked about with Sam Vecini, I think on the pod, about whether we should tier wings differently than other players. And this might be the way to bridge to kind of bridge the gap to not make it a hard and fast rule. But basically, wing you, you grade out wings in the same tiers as everybody else, but then you just move every single one of them up a tier because that way that way you kind of calibrate for positional scarcity. And you could make an argument that you move bigs down other than the best of the best. And so like I already had the 2017 draft up I'll, I'll run through like kind of the the players that you would say had had wing kind of wing tools tatum at three arguably underdrafted i mean I, he, he's the, actually he is underdrafted he's he's probably going to be the best player i mean bam and donovan mitchell and a couple other guys are going to have something to say about it but we'll see uh josh jackson that didn't work out super well i would say isaac was more of a big than a wing though there was this idea that he could play some small i wouldn't consider frank i mean he's a guard to me nilkina um, mm-hmm. 
Monk and Kennard is an interesting question along with Donovan Mitchell. Like all those guys can't really play the three. I think of I think you have to be able to play some small forward to be a true wing. I don't know if you agree yeah, with me on I that. I think definition. at this point you might even need to be able to like you need to be able to swing between the two and the four. Yeah. Uh Justin well, I'll, I'll say at least a th- at least be able to play the three for this definition. Uh, Justin Jackson probably qualifies. That didn't work out super well. Mm-hmm. Um, Terrence Ferguson, I would say he applies. Yeah, I mean he went twenty first. You could you could he, he's better than a lot of the guys who who were drafted above him. OG and Anobi, an easy miss. Like that was that was you know a, a really good example of this. Josh Hart was underdrafted. Wesuwundu, eh, we'll see. But you could argue who's even underdrafted. Ojale, obviously underdrafted. And after that point, it gets a, a Dylan Brooks was underdrafted. Damian Dotson, you could argue, was underdrafted. Like, it, it is kind of amazing when you when you see that perspective. And there aren't that many more. Like, the funny thing is the ripple effects when you go outside of that. Like, there aren't necessarily a ton of, like, undrafted wings. But I would guess that there are as many as there are at other positions. So, yeah, it is it is definitely an interesting idea. Um and I agree with you on the idea. I've, I've, I've posited this a lot. Like the, there are kind of two point guard theories that I have. One is the 48 good minutes idea. And Phoenix, going back to the well there is in 1819, was a great example of this, that not having competent play there. So like not having competent play, just that is the floor crusher. Like that just mm-hmm. pushes your floor all the way down to like the bottom of the league. And there, there are so many examples. And, and maybe the most pressing one right now was the Atlanta Hawks. Like, the Atlanta Hawks not having anything outside of Trey Young, they were the league's worst team when Trey Young wasn't on the floor. If they were competent in those minutes, I'm not even talking about good. If they were competent in those minutes, they probably would have had a shot at making the playoffs. They might have even made it. Um, but and, and but when he had to miss time and when Young was not on the floor, they got absolutely shellacted. And that, that absolutely nuked the Hawks last year. Then the other part is, I think, where you were getting with the kind of the heart of the LeBron thing, which is it is exceedingly difficult to have, let's call it a top 15 offense without a force, you know, like a, a lead initiator that can that can really do it. There there are some exceptions, you know, like the Clippers kind of did it a different way, but they have elite talent. Um, and, and there really aren't, and Denver, you know, it's kind of a different situation there, but Jokic is one of the best offensive players in the league, so you could argue that it's kind of six and one, half dozen the other. And San Antonio would probably be another one. I'm not the biggest DeJounte guy, and we'll see where they are next year in offense. But generally speaking, yeah, I mean, those are the exceptions rather than the rules. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also just like so much of what happens now, so many of the primary creators are on the wings. And you need people not just to be that guy, but to guard those guys. Like you can't come into a series against LeBron with only one guy that you can use to guard him. I think that's what you saw with the Nuggets. They really could only get away with Jeremy Grant on him. And Jeremy Grant you know, is a solid defender, but is not at all really equipped to guard LeBron. Well, and that was true with the Rockets as well. Yeah. I mean, the Rockets had a lot of talent, but they weren't particularly well suited to facing those bigger wings. Like, I mean, people freaked out a lot about how they could, how they could handle big men, but big men, other than somebody who passes like Jokic, and that can affect the structure of a defense, wings are actually tougher for, for that kind of small team. If you don't have, you know, like Robert Covington, I've talked about this for a couple of years now. He's a great defender, but not in the one-on-one, like, lock-down-your-guy concept. He's good at other things. Mm-hmm. And so that created all these problems for Houston because they didn't have that many good defenders. The defenders they had that were good weren't particularly adept at that situation. And if they got in foul trouble, they were completely screwed. And that's a part of how that series went so haywire was when those guys got in foul trouble, they just didn't have any suitable replacements. And that's not a surprise because not too many players exist with the skill set that the Rockets really needed. And 
that was part of the challenge of the way that team was constructed. And I'm not, that's not a huge dig on Daryl Morey. It's just building teams that are really small, that are competent defensively, takes special, special players. And that's not exactly breaking new ground here. Right. And I mean, the thing is, they were fine defensively for most of the time in the season. It's just that once they had to play against LeBron, it became clear that they just didn't have anyone for him and they didn't really have anyone for Anthony Davis. But you know what? There are very few teams that have anyone for LeBron or Anthony Davis. That's not exclusive to the Rockets. But I think you also saw it with Chris Paul, where he would just get switches on Covington. And the problem that you mentioned became very apparent where he just couldn't handle Chris Paul in open space. Covington is like a fantastic team defender, one of the best help defenders in the league, one of the best shot blockers in the league, despite the fact that he's a wing. But, you know, guarding a guard one on one in space or guarding LeBron one on one in space is just not the thing for him to do. And I actually was, was literally just talking about this like two days ago. The same friend I was talking about uh, the the draft with the Knicks with, he likes Isaac Okoro too. And I told him that, you know, the Knicks like him as well. So he sent me like clips of his defense. And I said that he reminded me a lot of Robert Covington because he had like, it seemingly had this elite help defense type of skills, but there were times where he got blown by in one-on-one defense. Um, he was able to recover and block the shot at times in those, but that was like literally I was just having this exact conversation the other day. So it's pretty funny looking through because I, I, because for the point I was making before I was looking through cleaning the glass and, and the top top offenses. And I had an interesting, you know, this is a very half baked, maybe even like one eighth baked thought on the so that there there's this group of teams that were in the top 10, top 15 in offense, despite not having that lead initiator, you know, the, the levels of Damian Lillard or Luca or whoever. And it's, there's an interesting kind of through line with it. So for me, the most prominent examples of that are San Antonio and Washington. Washington had the 15th ranked offense. San Antonio had the ninth. Both of those teams had terrible defenses. The Wizards were worse. Spurs were in the bottom 10. And my so my theory with that tentatively is the other way you could do it is to have a lot of offensive talent on the floor. But the problem is if you have as enough offensive talent on the floor to sing you know, relatively well there, you're going to suck on defense. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know that I have like because like that. it's interesting. So like with San Antonio, they they had to make all of these choices. So yeah, Demar Derozan is a great floor raiser offensively, but he's also terrible defensively. Is because and that was exacerbated in some ways on the Spurs because they didn't really have players who could plug the gaps defensively that he created. Whether we're talking about great rim protection or just other wing defenders like that. Unfortunately, the Demar Carroll experiment didn't work out particularly there. Trey Lyles isn't that guy. LaMarcus Aldridge isn't that guy. And they have good guard defenders. I mean, I love DeJounte's defense and Derek White has done well too, but they don't really do the same thing. And so if you're playing DeRozan at the three, he can help make certain parts of it better, but make certain parts of it worse. And then the Wizards are in some ways the ultimate funhouse mirror of this concept, which is they had terrible point guard play. They just didn't play anybody who could play defense. Yeah, they also – so with the Spurs, it's actually something I wrote about kind of I think like midway through the season before – like midway through before the the shutdown where – so their their pick and roll defense was awful. Um, Pirtle was good, but everybody else was just a disaster. Lamarcus was a disaster. Lyles was a disaster. But so I mean, you mentioned it. The two best defenders on the team, probably, other than Pirtle, 
were Derek White and DeJounte Murray, but they almost never played together. Yeah. You know, so the 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 perimeter defenders they had that were actually good, which are those two guys and to uh, a significantly lesser extent, Lonnie Walker. But I think he was pretty good one on one Walker. At least he was sort of spacey off the ball, but they just never played those guys together. So they didn't even really have the ability to take away drives through having good guards on the ball. You know, so they were just they were playing set, sort of a, a flawed construction defensively from the jump. Um, and then with the Wizards, you know, like you mentioned, like, you know, their, their point guards were like Ish Smith. And I mean, who, who else did they even have at point guard during the regular season? I honestly can't even remember. But it was Beal was basically the guy running the offense. It was Beal and Bertans. And when you have two guys that are that good shooting and then Beal, who was just way better off the dribble this season, I think, than he had been previously in his career, even though he was already good off the dribble. I mean, they just tried to outscore teams. And it was it was actually kind of perversely fun to watch their games because there were just so many points scored. Oh, yeah. You mean like the 159, 157 type stuff? It was. It was. Yeah. Pretty fun, and yeah. So I, I don't know I, I, exactly what you necessarily take away from that, other than the idea that these these trade offs become important. And something else that I've been thinking about a lot over the last little while. Um, there there have been comments on various you know social media and all that about you know like the lamenting, especially now with the Lakers being another big market NBA champion. Though worth noting, depending on how Toronto Toronto is not seen as a major market within the NBA world, it can be different depending on you know for using television numbers and all that sort of fun stuff. But I've I, I've kind of vacillated on this, and it's funny because I happen to have grown up and now live in what was never considered a major market until the Warriors started winning, and is now considered some something weird kind of hybrid between them. Is that there? So there's this idea that oh, only you know like five teams come into the year with a chance to win the championship. And first of all, I'm not an NBA historian, but I believe that is largely true going back. You know, there are exceptions and anomalies, just like everything else. But realistically, that's about how many. I mean, we think about part of why we all love basketball is that it's a very star-driven sport. And it's hard to win a championship without those guys. Miami was a great team. Miami went through everything else, and they could have gotten even closer if they hadn't gotten hurt so badly in the NBA Finals. But you know, they're 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 kind of an exception that proves the rule because they didn't win a, they didn't win the championship inevitable in, in the end anyway. And but I also don't think that's a bad thing. I I it's it's certainly harder to sell to fans and everything like that. But I don't think, and I guess this is maybe not that it's not a bad thing, but I don't think there's a way to truly remedy that. And if you want to give stars some agency, some ability to control where they're going to be, and you want to have artificially capped salaries for them, which, you know, there's a rationale for that in terms of competitive balance and everything else, then this, you know, top, you know, top dominated leagues that are often those top teams happen to often be concentrated in major markets that is not an inevitable end game but an exceedingly likely one this is probably my least favorite <laughs> nba conversation um but i would say that typically the pool of real contenders is actually probably narrower than five teams yeah in most years, I was going to write something about this last year, just in terms of the the number of teams that enter the season with like better than plus one thousand odds to win the title. I didn't end up writing it, but it was this year was the first time since I think twenty fourteen, uh, maybe it was twenty fifteen, that there were more than uh, five teams with plus one thousand odds or better. Um, that was the year the whatever uh, the Warriors won their first title in 2015. So it's the first the first time since 2015 that that happened. But before that, you had to go back to like 
I think like 2006 or 2007, somewhere in there. Um, it's just not very often that there are more than five teams that are considered, you know, true title contenders coming into the year. But I'll note that none of the teams that had better than plus 1000 coming into this season was the heat who made the finals. Um, but I think also the idea that contenders always cluster in big markets is kind of off. I think they just always cluster on the Lakers. Um, the Lakers are the exception of everything in NBA history. They get the stars pretty much whenever they want, with the exception of that five-year or so period before LeBron came there. And everyone else, it kind of rotates. Like you said, the Warriors were pretty much a laughing stock until, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. The Nets never got free agents until this year. The Clippers never got free agents until this year. The Heat got free agents in 2010, and they got Jimmy this year. And that's it. The Celtics got Al Horford and Kemba Walker, and that's it. But before that, never got free agents. And it was like a thing how the Celtics never got free agents. The Knicks, literally in the biggest market in the league, have never once gotten their first choice in free agency. Like, with the exception of the Lakers, it's not like the same teams are getting the same guys over and over again. It's just a, a very small group of players over the last 10 years have cycled through a few different teams, but they've also left those teams. LeBron left the Heat. You know, Kevin Durant left the Warriors. Kyrie left the Celtics. Al Horford left the Celtics. Like, it's just, I think the way it gets portrayed is mostly not true, and it also applies to, like, a group of players that's like, I don't know, 1%, probably less than 1% of the player pool of the last 10 years. And it's just very often people are trying to solve a problem that, either isn't there or only applies to a limited group of guys and also doesn't really affect the league for all that long anyway because it's like a three four year period that these guys stay with any given team and then they go somewhere else and it also only solves for free agency when you can obviously acquire players in many different ways like if if the problem is free agents don't sign with the Pacers, well, why don't we also sign the solve the problem that guys don't get traded to Sacramento or that the Knicks suck at drafting? Like, you know, it's just like and every time they try to solve this specific problem, they make it worse in one way or another. They tried to solve it in 2011 because they were like, oh, well, we can't allow extended trades or traded and extends because of what happened with Carmelo Anthony forcing his way to the Knicks. Well, guess what? They basically outlawed extensions altogether because they forgot to uh, to to make it that you can't extend with your team beforehand either. They just, they made the rules such that there was no incentive to extend with your team before hitting free agency. Then they were like, you know what? We're going to try to outlaw the Kevin Durant's happening by making it so you know you, it's worth so much more to sign with your quote-unquote home team. And they forgot that teams aren't going to want to pay all that money more and guys are just going to force their way out well, anyway. And, and there's there's a great unintended consequence of the designated veteran extensions in that defining defining the pool became a really big problem because if you made it too wide, the players who are most open to taking it aren't the best players. You know, it's the mm-hmm. John Walls because John Walls like, hell yeah, I'm going to take that money. Like that's a, that's a fantastic offer for me. And Kawhi Leonard... Not as interested. Anthony Davis, not as interested because they knew that that they knew that the money would be out there for them or they had reasonable confidence that it would be. Both of them, it turns out, will end up being totally correct because that's the way the league works. 
And so you, you get into all those unintended consequences too. And like the one that I bring up a lot here, partially because I wrote about it in my book because of how the Warriors were affected by it was the last time they tried flattening the lottery odds. Like basically what happened was the the Magic weren't a terrible team. Then in consecutive years, they got two really high draft picks that eventually became Shaq and Penny. And then they were really good. It's like people were like, hey, that's not fair. And so then <laughs> they, they shifted it back. And then it, it seemed like the, 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 the Sixers and tanking and everything like that. And I think really what that goes to show is there is no perfect system, not even close to it. And the other part of what you're talking about, and I thought that was great of running through kind of where guys have gone, is there's often a sliding scale of what counts as a big market and what counts as a big team. Like at different moments in time, various places do and do not count. Like, for example, like the the Clippers are a really interesting one. I actually argue that the Clippers fit this, fit the idea of kind of the criticism because the reason that nobody considered them, my theory, and this, I think this is correct, the reason that nobody considered them for so long was because they were terribly run and, and owned by a monster. And right. so, Well, that's exactly why guys don't sign with the Knicks. Exactly. And so th- this was my big thing with the, uh, with the 2011 CBA, actually, um, was that it conveyed these absolutely gargantuan advantages to major markets, but those teams were so poorly run during that time that it didn't end up screwing the league the way, like the competitive balance, the way that it could have. And now things are actually tilted a little bit more towards the towards the the non-major markets, but those teams are generally becoming better run. In the case of the Nets and Clippers, it was kind of because they couldn't be worse run during the first part of that decade. And then they started reaping some real rewards. So I think there might actually be some validity to that criticism. But I think that it's it's kind of poorly timed in that respect. And it becomes harder when you think about the kind of the, the fringe major markets that if they're run competently, they absolutely have a shot. And like... It's also not about the size of the market necessarily; is the desirability. Like it's sometimes those are conflated. Miami's an interesting one for that. Like, right, Miami is a below average market size for the NBA. Right, but it is above average in terms, well above average in terms of desirability of like place to play, and especially when they're well run, which they typically are. Then that gets in there, and I think that's kind of more in line with what the San Francisco Bay Area is. It's like you know, it's a place that people are cool to live. It's it's it's, and especially during the NBA season, the weather is usually better than it is a lot of other places. But then. I know, I live there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so I think that it is going to be fascinating to see where these things go. And that actually leads me into another kind of point that I wanted to discuss with you, which is – I've been talking about this, including with our mutual friend Seth Partnow. We we had a conversation about this kind of as the season was ending. We were talking about what we were looking forward to in this offseason. And I, I, at the end, threw out this very basic idea that I want to write about at some point, which is risk. And so there are lots of different ways that this can factor in. You know, it's like, will young guys sign extensions? Will, uh, you know, maybe below what they normally would have? Would, you know, how are teams going to approach long contracts? How are players going to approach long contracts? But I'm talking about a very specific one here, which is less common, which is I'm going to use Victor Oladipo and Drew Holiday as the examples here, which is they're not superstar players, but they are important players. And Oladipo, when he was before he got hurt, was was, you know, kind of on that star superstar border as a like a kind of an all NBA player. Mm-hmm. And so those a couple of those guys, Holiday and, and Oladipo, are hitting in all likelihood unrestricted for agency in 2021. And they're currently on teams that are good. I mean, the Pacers were obviously more successful than the Pelicans this year, but the Pelicans are younger and everything else. And so I would say both of those front offices have to be very cognizant of the possibility that those players, as unrestricted for agents, just want something else with 
their time. And when you're, you know, in some ways, it's more interesting when it's not a max, necessarily a rigidly max player, because then the money can be closer to even and their, their priorities can be a little bit different. And so what I'm, what I was thinking about today, I was, I was, I was on a walk and I was thinking about Oladipo is just how comfortable should the Pacers be with the possibility that he ends next season on their roster and then just leaves? Um, I think they should be pretty comfortable with it, but probably won't be, if that makes sense. Um, you obviously don't want to lose an asset for nothing, but you also don't want to make a trade just to get something because the something that you get might end up not being good and might hamstring you in another way. Um, as an example, Patrick Ewing at the end of his career, going back to the Knicks again, of course, uh, didn't really want to be on the Knicks anymore and his contract was kind of onerous. And instead of just saying, all right, we'll keep you for this one year and then you can go sign elsewhere, they decided they needed to trade him and that started their cap hell of the next you know, 15 years, basically. Um, so trading Oladipo just to trade him is, I think, not necessarily the best idea. If you can get something that is valuable then i think it's good but i don't know i don't think the value of oladipo is around the league is as high as the name value right now because he just hasn't played well since he came back from that injury which is totally understandable but i think that the pacers probably value him a little bit higher than what he's shown on the court which again is understandable so i think he's just one of the most difficult guys in the league to trade which is why i kind of think they should go into the season with him on the roster and hope he sort of rehabilitates his trade value, try to trade him later. And if that doesn't happen, just be okay with him leaving. That's probably the right approach. And it's as it always depends on what is out there. And generally speaking, those sorts of offers are not public. You know, periodically we'll hear something well after the fact, but generally speaking, we won't. And Oladipo in particular, I think you brought up the idea of name value versus player value. That's a real a real big challenge with him. And because players get hurt, unfortunately, somewhat frequently, but it's less common for a really good player to have one of those injuries that still like that has lingering scare value. This isn't a torn ACL where the hope is that, you know, it's going to take time, but after that, that they will be at least somewhat close to what they were. It's it's not that kind of an issue. And there's a there's mm. a distinct chance that Victor Oladipo is never the player that we saw before he got hurt and, and or that it requires such constant maintenance that you don't get that value as regularly. And that's a real challenge. And this year will be a big data point for that in one direction or the other. Hopefully it's in the positive that, oh, look, he, he just needed more time to recover and Oladipo will be great. I, I don't know. I hope that it's that, but we don't know. And, and so that is a, a very real challenge. And with, with Oladipo, it's not as extreme as something like Giannis, where like I've argued that the Bucks shouldn't trade him even if he declines the, you know, which I expect that he will, if he declines the designated veteran extension offer, because there is basically no chance that you're going to get back anything close to what Giannis gives you. And even the low chance, should it be low, and I'm not saying that it is, chance if it, if they were to view it that way of him coming back after that, it's still, you know, worth it. Oladipo's not that level player, not, not particularly close. Even when he was at his best, he's not like regular season MVP level. But the idea, I think, still holds merit, which is, what are you getting for Oladipo? And how does how does that, like, basically, if there's something you can get for him that you think gives you a sustainable foundation moving forward, 
and you also think there's a relatively low chance that he is the same and or comes back after next season, then yeah, I think you, you, you go after it and you do something. But if if you're not really sold on either of those, it doesn't seem like the benefits are, are as clear. Yeah, I think it also matters like in terms of what do the what kind of team do the Pacers want to be? When do they want to be that kind of team? Like what is the the horizon that they're looking at? And is it like are they trying like I don't know that they should be expecting necessarily to like go to the finals this year, but they're if there's a move that can move them closer to the goal of being able to go to the finals at some point during like the Sabonis and Brogdon era, which is covers, I guess, the next three years. Like, is there a move tr- that trading Oladipo can get you that piece that brings you closer? I don't know that there necessarily is. I think you're far more likely to get something for Oladipo that would improve your um, your prospects beyond that horizon. And is that something that the Pacers are actually all that interested? And that's something that they need to to think about when considering it too. Yeah, and that works as a natural kind of transition to the Pelicans, who I think have an even more complicated conversation that David Griffin and his front office need to be having in terms of timeline. Because over the, you know, the the Anthony Davis trade gave them a bunch of younger, but not super duper young, especially in terms of the contract stuff, which you and I both care about a lot. And they, but they also have this collection of of veterans. You know, JJ Reddick's on the team. They still have Drew, who's going to be the focal point of this. And you know, and we'll see what happens with Derek Favors and everything else. And so I think that there does it does not always have to unify. I think sometimes there's that I, this idea that everybody needs to be on the same timeline. I don't agree with that, but it can be useful to have it kind of going in the same direction because that also can sometimes be predictive about what players want. And I don't know what Drew Holiday is going to want in a free agent destination. Maybe he wants to stick around in New Orleans. They traded for him in the first place. They seems like they've treated him pretty well, and they might have a bright future. He'll know a lot more about that by next offseason. So, but at the same point, like partially due to just the practicalities of roster expenses and everything else, like I'm very interested in what David Griffin sees as the way forward, especially in light of them hiring Stan Van Gundy. Yeah. So I think a couple of things here, like, I think you're right. Like you don't have to have everyone on your team in like the same four year age band. Like you can have guys that are a little bit older, guys that are a little bit younger. I think you probably should have guys that are a little bit older and guys that are a little bit younger than whatever your core is, because the younger guys will improve over the course of their contracts and be able to take on larger roles as the older guys sort of age out of being the most useful version of themselves. And that's good because you can have lower cost guys taking on larger roles as you can cycle out of, you know, the presumably higher cost guys. I think in particular for the Pelicans, it's valuable specifically to have Drew and Redick because like we talked about earlier, having good or at least competent point guard play is enormously important. And even though Drew isn't necessarily a pure point guard, he sort of shares that role a little bit with Lonzo Getting rid of one of those two guys at that position, I think, has an outsized effect. And unless you're getting a player who is similarly impactful at that position, you might be giving up more than you think you are just because of that position's importance. And then with Redick, I mean, it's just so important around guys like Zion and to a lesser extent Ingram and Ball to have someone who draws attention away from the ball, even not just by shooting, but also by moving. Um, so I think those two guys in particular are really important. And if you don't get someone who fills 
the same or similar functions in return in trades for those kind of guys, I think you're likely to see, you know, less impact, even if the player is, you know, let's say a center who's better than J.J. Redick on the court. Yeah, and and another reason in favor of kind of being patient for the Pelicans is having more time to figure out what their foundational pieces are going to be and how you build around that. So Zion's defense is going to be, I mean, yes, he's special offensively. We know that. We know that. And there are certain things that you want to do with Zion Williamson in terms of like, I mean, especially go back to Stan Van Gundy in, in Orlando, and he he was one of the early coaches to play four out. And Zion's jumper could come around, but I mean, you kind of want to assume that it won't. And also because as I've brought up a million times with Dallas, playing five out is pretty sweet too. You don't you like you don't have to say, oh great, we, we we're we're gonna have shooters everywhere else, and then that means we can play a non-shooter. You only do that if it's worthwhile. And so they probably want that spacing around Ingram around around Zion, and that's part of why Ingram's growth there has been so important. But how you specifically, you know, how you pick the players for their starting and closing fives. That depends a lot on where what Zion's defensive role is. Is he, you know, are, mm-hmm. are you looking for that unicorn of somebody who can protect the rim and do everything else because you don't trust that Zion's going to get there in two to three years? Are you waiting a little bit on to see whether to see what he picks up in the new system, whether to see, you know, some of that short area quickness that Zion has, can, if that can transfer defensively? I thought that he did a better job of that at Duke, incidentally, than he did on New Orleans last year. And some of that might have been injury related. We'll have to see. But also because, I mean, Zion is the one that we talk about a lot, but 2020 slash 21 is going to be a gargantuan year for evaluation of Lonzo Ball. Mm-hmm. And can he, well, you know, like, what is his role in an ideal team? What is his role on a playoff team? And, I, you know, Lonzo Ball teams can be really fun to watch. I love the way that he pushes the pace and he encourages other guys to run because they have confidence that he'll find them. But if you run into a, let's call it a Ben Simmons problem where he's far better at creating offense in transition and then very limited in the half court. And I think Lonzo is doing better, but he still has some of those problems. Then there are two things. One, you need somebody else to do that. And two, that just lowers Lonzo's value to the Pelicans because he just, not necessarily that he can't, but that you wouldn't expect him to become that kind of a guy. And then that, of course, has all these ancillary effects on Drew Holiday's value. Because if Lonzo can't do some of those things, then you need somebody who can. And maybe that's Drew. Maybe that's somebody else who you don't have yet. But it is an important an important question to kind of think about for them. And what might end up making the most sense is, yeah, it can make you a little bit queasy, but it might be just having all of these decisions to make during the 2021 offseason because Lonzo's going to be restricted. Josh Hart's going to be restricted. Nicola Belli matters a little bit less. He'll be restricted. Redick unrestricted. Probably Drew Holiday unrestricted. But at least you'll have a lot more information to work with. Yeah, I actually wrote about the specific Lonzo thing like right at the start of the bubble and just like basically Lonzo what Lonzo's value is is essentially that he makes his teammates better. You know, he's not necessarily a high usage guy, but he's so willing to move the ball and put guys in good position and things like that. And the idea of the story is that Lonzo makes his teammates better and Zion makes Lonzo better, actually. Just like the chemistry that they've had on the court and his performance with Zion on the court versus off the court is just, I mean, it's been so much better. Um, Granted, he did not really have a good bubble, but really nobody on New Orleans had a good bubble. True. So it's, um, I'm not sure how much stock to put into that. But I do think it's interesting just in terms of like 
they obviously are going to be building their team around whatever Zion is going to be. And do you want guys that make him better? Do you want guys that he makes better? What is the balance of what's going on there supposed to look like? And like, how much does it matter that you have a guy on your team who is really good when he plays with Zion? Like that, I feel like that sort of factors in too. That doesn't necessarily make Lonzo, Lonzo a more valuable player, but I do think it makes him more valuable to the Pelicans, if that makes sense. It does, and then there's a kind of a correlated thing, which is Zion probably makes a lot of guys better, so how much do we want to put stock right. in that when we could theoretically maybe bring somebody else in with different strengths and weaknesses, and it could work out too? Yeah, that's definitely true. So I, I think those are some of the big ones. I mean, another one we're, we're kind of dealing with the reporting on this is trickling out as we're as we recorded and also during the course of the day of like, what is the timeline? What do we know about the salary cap at each given point? Because the, I mean, I've talked about this a lot and you and I, you know, former colleagues at mid-level exceptional, this is something we care about a lot is how are they, because it's going to be collectively bargained where the cap line is for the 2020 Mm -hmm. season. But it probably, especially if there's this talk about shortening the 2020 slash 21 season, which I actually support something that, that Seth Barno and I talked about back in the hiatus, I think, about the benefits of, you know, basically starting with the end and then working your way back before that is they're probably going to have to do the same for 21. And that matters a lot more because the summer 2021, everybody's focusing on cap space. Right. And, I, you know, I agree, first of all, on shortening the season, I think. All of the seasons going forward should be shorter. I think that that is even less likely now that there's been so much lost revenue from this season. I don't think the owners are going to necessarily want to give up a bunch of money in the near future. Um, But I do think like the only thing that matters, I think, for this offseason in terms of the way teams are going to run themselves over the next few years is figuring out what the cap is going to look like. Like no decisions can be made about anything until they decide what the cap is going to be next year and the year after. Like that's why there was a report like literally two minutes before we started recording that some of the owners want to start next season on Christmas. Um, I think even if they decided on the cap today, that would be pretty tough. And obviously they have not decided on the cap yet. I think that it's more likely to just mean like we want the start, the season to start as as soon as possible, which means they want to decide on the cap as soon as possible. Yeah. I I think that's, that's pretty true. And the focus on revenue is a, is a practical one. Also, you could think about it from the player's perspective, because if there's more revenue, then they get more of it, you know, like not, not, not a higher percentage, but they just, there's a bigger pie and, and the players can get that. And you could, you could see where there's incentive, let's call it from, from that perspective. And there are going to be a lot of pressures in play. I, I've, I've said that I think this would be a great time to try out a shorter, a shorter season, but maybe the structure of like everyone plays everyone twice. There are problems there in terms of like travel efficiency, something that you brought up in the very beginning of the podcast, because if you're only playing everybody in each place one time, then you can't do some of the efficiency stuff. But maybe there'll be ways around that. Maybe they end up doing some regional bubbles anyway if they have to. Um, but the other – I forgot – I'm mad at myself for forgetting to mention this, but this ties in with the idea of the 2021 cap anyway so I can bring it back is I was working on a collaborative piece on the Cavs, which will probably be out next week at some point. And we were talking about 
Andre Drummond. And a point that I brought up with him, but I think is relevant for Drew Holiday and relevant for Victor Oladipo, in addition, is in many circumstances, there is a benefit to bringing in the player ahead of time, not just because they're on your team and because you're trying to convince them to stay. Like you can think about this as the Kawhi Leonard or Paul George idea, which worked for OKC, did not work for Toronto other than, you know, winning a championship. It's also, by the way, not to bring it back to their failures again, but it's what the Knicks tried to do by trading for DeAndre Jordan before they wanted to sign. Yep. Uh, and, and what the Knicks did with Carmelo Anthony, but that was a different thing because they had the capacity that seemed like he already wanted to go there. Yeah. It can um, also backfire if the guy that you trade for sees that your organization is not good. Yeah, correct, Mundo. And uh, the Lakers with Dwight Howard is another example. Yes, of that. yes. And the first time. And, and I think that – so in a normal time, the reason that that becomes – useful not only because a it's probably a good player and you want them on your team is because of the concept of bird rights and so bird rights are a way of allowing a team that is over the cap to retain their own players and so that actually makes a ton of sense and that's part of why i thought danilo gallinari in before the thunder ended up being as successful as they were i thought that he was going to get moved was this idea of there are a bunch of teams in 20 in this offseason that don't have cap space and so hey having gallinari basically being able to get him maybe on a reduced price but you know instead of And then you could theoretically, if you wanted to spend, still have the middle level, do all these other things. There was value to that. However, going into 2021, when all of these teams are going to have cap space, it really does reduce the value to for those potential teams of acquiring somebody like Oladipo or Drew or, in this case, Andre Drummond, because those bird rights weren't going to matter anyway. And so does a team that is going to have cap space... Or, or even a team that like kind of could, let's say like the Dallas Mavericks, who they could kind of go either way. Do they want to commit to Victor Oladipo, to Andre Drummond, to something like that ahead of time? Or even like, or even just like, and I don't mean commit like they're going to sign him to necessarily an extension or a contract right now, but in the sense of giving up assets thinking he's our guy. Instead of just, because there are two ways that you get burned on this, and it's both, it's, it's about team optimism. For Dallas, it's like, maybe we can do better. Maybe we can get somebody better than Player X. We can get somebody Star X or something like that. And then the other part is, like, basically kind of the why now idea, which is like, yeah, we're we maybe we can't do better, but we can just get that guy and not have to give up anything for him. And I think that both of those will hurt teams like the Pacers if they want, it'll hurt the offers, whether they want to move Oladipo or not. Right, so a couple things. One, I think... Oladipo is actually um, a very good target for the Mavs, specifically because he only has the one year on his contract. And they can say, we're going to take a look at him for this year. And if he's good, if we strike out on Giannis, who they're obviously going to be chasing, well, then they can, you know, resign Oladipo. Yeah, they'll have his hold um, on the books. That That is an interesting argument. And then with Gallo, I thought literally the exact same thing last summer. And I I. Th- think like the day the uh the paul george trade got done i was like the blazers should offer baysmore and some sort of pick for gallo like they would have immediately gotten a big upgrade at a spot that wound up becoming pretty important for them and they probably needed someone there and okc would have gotten all the way under the tax while adding another pick but it turns out that okc was just better than i thought they were going to be and gala was a big part of that so i mean it, it i think would have been a pretty good idea um, but okc didn't really necessarily need to 
to go in that direction. But now I think it's very possible that they wind up losing him, not necessarily for nothing, because they did get something out of it. They got, you know, uh, a playoff appearance and they got guys like Shea, you know, experiences in the playoffs and Lou Dort experiences in the playoffs. And that could turn out to be worth it for them in the long run. Um, But I think I was sort of on the same track as you in terms of my thinking there. Yeah. And it is hard sometimes to reconcile like all those different forces that can be in play and for Sam Presti I mean getting it ended up working out pretty well in the short term for them and who knows maybe maybe Gallinari will back maybe they can get something for him via sign and trade I'm a little bit skeptical of that because of the way the hard cap works it's possible I would say it's possible but not necessarily probable at the moment I will not foreclose that possibility and I mean, the Thunder got a playoff berth out of it. They had a, a a really fun season. Like I think that's kind of oh you know, yeah. Some sometimes the the you know, like the it wasn't a slog. Like let's say the Orlando Magic. Like the Orlando Magic made the playoffs. The Orlando Magic playoff run does not feel the same way that the Oklahoma City <laughs> Thunder playoff run happens. And I, I think that the kind of the point I want to end this on, um, it, which is something that I'm really intrigued by moving forward, and I, I'm you know I'm going to write about this, and I think it'll be a frequent point of Real Gym Radio over the next few months is the rising tide in the West, and basically there's this I we'll we'll see where things go in the next month or two, but there are very few teams in the Western Conference that are both low on talent and low on drive to like make the playoffs. OKC could move themselves into that conversation. We'll see what happens with Minnesota and San Antonio and a couple others. But that actually has a bunch of different ramifications for not only the West, but for the rest of the league. One is it's probably going to make it harder to make the playoffs in the West, because if you have 13 teams trying, inevitably some are going to do better, some are going to do worse, some are going to be healthy, some are going to be unhealthy. And so the more teams that try, the more the more the barrier is likely to get pushed up. It's not definite. But then the other thing that happens is the more you push that up, the combination with lottery reform, I think, is going potentially could, and you know, it always depends on just where the ping pong balls fall, could end up being a real challenge for the East because what's going to happen is you'll have a couple of these teams that are good but just get knocked out a little bit early. And I'm not saying they're going to tank, but they'll take their foot off the accelerator a little bit. And there will be East teams that will be worse but we'll be closer and we'll keep pushing. And so I think that it's going to lead to like this weird morass. And then if the West teams end up jumping out of that into the top four of the lottery, they're going to be so much better. And that's just going to keep the cycle going. This has been an issue for a while, I think. Oh yeah. Like, oh, it's yeah. coming about what I'm saying is it's coming back and it might be as strong. Oh, yeah. as it's been And a I mean, look, it, it same thing happened last year where two West teams from the back of the lottery moved up and got the two best players in the draft. Yeah, and 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 now it looks like they're you know they're ready to kind of jump into a different level. Memphis, I was stunned. I mean, Memphis was. I had said they were like the only team that I didn't have. I had confidence were not going to make the playoffs, and then they sort of did. It's the play in is weird, but um, I mean they completely exceeded my expectations, and a lot of that was John Morant being incredible. Yeah, <laughs> like you know, do you think the league would have been pretty happy if those two guys landed in? I don't know New York, and I mean the Knicks had the best. Uh, so that's um, who had the second best Cleveland. I think they would have been happier about one of those than the other. Yeah. But I mean, I think they would have been happy if both of them wound up in the East. Yeah. I mean, if you were to say like New York and Chicago. Yeah. New York and Chicago. There you go. Or New York and Detroit, Atlanta. Washington, Charlotte, Atlanta. Yeah. Like, Yeah. It is kind of incredible. You go back to the 2019 draft lottery. Five of the top six lottery odds were Eastern Conference teams. And then the number... The number one pick, the number two pick, 
and the number four pick all go to Western Conference teams. And then the four pick gets traded originally to another Western Conference team, but then eventually goes to an Eastern Conference team. Right. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, and what uh, they did the lottery this year. Who's got the number? Um, so it's two Western Conference teams with the top two picks this year, too Minnesota and Golden State. Yeah. But at least this year they were, you know, two of the three worst records. So it's not as it's not as ridiculous of like. Sure, but, but I, I mean, the Warriors in some ways are teams that we also back to be two of the three worst teams next year. Yeah, that's true. It's even independent of having the number one and two pick in the draft. But granted, the next three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So three to nine are all Eastern Conference teams. So. Yeah, but that's also because those that's who was in the, in, in the records in the first place. Right. Uh, anything else you feel like you, you definitely want to discuss? Um, no, I think uh, I think we covered a bunch. Um, I just, uh, like you, you know, I want to know what the cap is, when the cap is going to come in, when next season is going to start, what next season is going to look like. Like, are we going to be going to games? Not, nece- not necessarily fans at games, but even like media at games. Is there going to be a bubble or teams going to be going in and out of multiple bubbles? Like, there's just so much to work out. And I think we should expect it to take uh, longer than shorter, uh, even despite the report that came out just before we started recording this podcast. I think it just there's too much to work out for it to be decided in the next week or so. I would be happy to be proven wrong about that. Um, but I also think that it's going to take a little bit still. Yeah, entirely possible. I'm I'm really excited to see how it works out and what we not only what we find out about the upcoming season, but what we find out about the next season. I think that's going to be you know you and I are going to be looking as intently at that number if if we get one as the number for this year. Oh yeah, I mean especially like that's the off season that so many more teams care about than this one. Like, yeah, I mean for for very obvious reasons. I mean. Uh, I saw a report the other day like, oh, you know, the Mavericks plan to chase Giannis. It's like, yeah, uh, no shit, man. Every 28 teams are going to chase him like or sorry, 29 teams are going to. Eh, maybe there's maybe there's like a team that won't like, uh, I don't know what what who's the cheapest owner. They won't chase him. Other than that, everybody else is going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank you so much for taking time. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Always a good time to uh, to get back on the podcast and talk with you about this stuff. Thanks so much to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can also uh, read his work all over the place, including 538. He did a piece on Daryl Morey that I think was interesting in terms of like all the trades that he, that he did as the general manager of the Houston Rockets. And he also does some great football work if you're if you're interested in that as well. Um, that's I think at primarily at CBS, but you can check all that out. And that's a great reason to follow Jared on Twitter at J A Dubin five J A D U B I N. And then the number five love having him on. And especially when there's kind of different ground to cover. And I think that Jared is particularly great at that. So love having him on still plenty going on in my world dunked on. We're, we're reducing to two times a week for a couple weeks now kind of Nate and I are taking a little bit of a break in between the the finals and the draft we're still going to have some content and the free episodes are still every week of course as well and then we're going to go back to five times a week and the exact timing will depend on the league figuring everything else out and that's going to be very important obviously so you can keep an eye there written work at the athletic I have the final offseason previews coming very quickly and then also some collaborative work which I've been wanting to do for a while, but, you know, now actually have the opportunity with fewer games going on. So pretty so.
about that. And then I have some big picture stuff in the works as well for the coming off season and kind of where things are going. So you can expect all of that at The Athletic. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode, whatever podcast player you use, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever. That's great. Also spreading the word by word of mouth. There's an episode that that you like or you like the show in general and you think somebody else would like it too. And then leaving a rating, leaving a review. Those are great things that you can do as well because they help other people find the show. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. And we'll be back next week, probably later in the week. Um, I'm going to be out of town for a few days early on, and then I will be back and have a few potential things in mind. So we'll see which one actually comes to be. But thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.